I mean, the first thing I would say is that being a successful VC is very, very hard. So if your objective is to make lots of money, uh, there are probably much easier ways to make lots of money <laughs> than becoming a VC. Um, you know, the typical successful startup uh, uh, exits within seven plus years. Um, that's longer than many real marriages actually last. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a long-lasting relationship. Um, so go in understanding that, that this isn't a transaction, this is a relationship that you're, you're engaging in. Wise words for those MBAs who are interested in the VC industry. Many MBAs are drawn to the glamour of the VCs by the rush of the deal. But as our guest said, making the deal is only the beginning of a long relationship. You are listening to Changing Careers, a podcast about how MBA careers are changing and how MBAs change their careers. I am Helen Harding-Mail, standing in for Conrad Chua. Conrad slightly lost his voice after being subjected to flu from his seven-year-old daughter. But on with the show. Today's guest is Per von Zelowitz, an American who did an MBA in the UK. He worked in the wireless and VC industries in Sweden before moving back to New York to start his own companies and become a VC. I should say that since this podcast was recorded, Pear has left City Ventures to join PwC. As always, we start with Pear introducing himself. My name is Pear von Zelowitz, and uh, most of my career has been involved uh, in technology entrepreneurship um, through uh, various experiences. Um, so my first job uh, out of undergraduate school was with a large ins insurance company called the Chubb Group in the United States. Um, and it was directly after that that I attended uh, The Judge, which was a fantastic experience and really where I first got involved uh, with technology entrepreneurship. Um, so I, I owe a lot um, to The Judge from, from that uh, standpoint. Uh, after I, I graduated um, from The Judge with my MBA, I moved to Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, worked both with a technology consulting company called Northstream, um, focused mostly on uh, the wireless domain. Um, but they had also set up a small venture capital fund uh, called Argonor Wireless Ventures, where I first uh, gained some experience in technology investing. So I was fortunate to work with Argonor for about three years, investing in, in early-stage mobile and wireless-oriented companies, mostly in the Nordic countries. After 10 years uh, living in, in Stockholm, Sweden, I decided it was time to move back to New York City, um, which is uh, where I was born and uh, where I'm from originally, and uh, founded two software companies uh, after I had moved back to New York. It was really the beginning of of the growth of the technology ecosystem in New York City. So it was really an exciting time um, to start a company. Uh, the first one I founded is a company called Plus N, um, which is in the uh, wireless domain also. It's a, a telecom infrastructure product that's still going and uh, Touchwood will, will continue to be successful. Um, and uh, another company called Cowery, um, where we built a advertising technology product um, which was a programmatic exchange for different digital publishers to trade unsold online inventory with each other. And that company um, failed. Um, so we shut it down after a couple of years of, of uh, trying to validate the opportunity. Um, and it was directly after that uh, that I joined um, Citigroup, um, working in City Ventures, uh, which is the, the venture capital innovation group within, within Citibank. 
Perry, you've invested a lot in technology startups. What do you look for when uh, a potential star- when a startup comes to you and pitches to you? The most important characteristic is is uh, the team, and I'm sure you've heard this before. And and it's nothing it's nothing unique to what I'm stating. But uh, if you have the right people in a startup or in any company, uh, that's uh, the most important success factor. So. It doesn't need to be people who necessarily have a huge amount of experience in a certain domain, although depending on exactly what they're focused on trying to do, what problem they're trying to solve, that can be critical. Um, but it needs to be a group of people who are willing uh, to uh, work very hard, um, to experiment in the right way around the problem area that they're trying to solve, um, and uh, be able to navigate in a very agile manner um, in order to ultimately reach uh, what we call product market fit, um, which is is an early indication uh, that they're onto something um, successful. So team is is number one. Another critical characteristic is really the market opportunity they're going after. So it doesn't need to be a uh, well understood market, um, but the assumptions that you're setting in place at the outset uh, that you want to uh, validate and you deem to be true. Um, need to be such that if they are true, there's a big enough opportunity that this can really turn into an interesting and big business so that ultimately you're solving a huge amount of uh, uh, problems for the customer and creating a lot of value for the customer. And on the back of that, you should be able to create a lot of value for your for your own startup. Um, so the, in my opinion, those are really the two most critical um, characteristics. On the team side, I mean, are there things that so, uh, almost like red alarm bell, set off alarm bells for you when you look when you see a team come come towards you. Especially if you are the CEO or one of the founders uh, of of the startup. Uh, number one is you need to be able to communicate very very clearly um, what the problem is that you're trying to solve and what the opportunity is uh, for your for your company and how you think you're going to be able to solve that. Um, if you can't articulate clearly what you're uh, opportunity is and, and how you're going to pursue that opportunity. Um, it's unlikely you're going to be able to convince investors um, to support your company. It's unlikely that you'll be able to uh, sell effectively um, to the customers that you're targeting. So number one is is an ability to to articulate. So if they're not able to do that, that's that's bad news. That's a that's a red flag. Um, another issue can be their inability to attract um, other smart people to want to work with them. So if you see that they're really struggling um, to attract other employees, uh, if they're trying to attract co-founders and having a very hard time to do that, uh, that can be a red flag. They simply aren't able to to tell the story in the right way, or the story just might not be compelling enough to attract really good people. Um, so again, uh, you need to be able to build a team and theoretically a world-class team in order to be successful. Um, so attracting and retaining talent is is a critical factor. So those are those are two red flags. If you can't articulate um, what your opportunity is and if you can't um, attract other good people, there's probably an issue there. We're talking right now in um, the offices of one of the companies you've invested in here in New York. So, I mean, you've had experience both working in, in Europe and in New York. What's your take on how New York has developed as a place for startups? New York is great. So from the standpoint of the startup ecosystem in New York City, uh, it's developed massively and it's fantastic. Um, when I founded my first startup, uh, Plus N, in New York uh, in the early 2000s, uh, the ecosystem here was really just developing. So an example is there, there's a meetup in New York called the, the Tech Meetup, um, which at that time uh, was being held in 
a small restaurant or a small office space. Um, and today, uh, there have been New York tech meetups where literally thousands of people attend in an auditorium in NYU, and it's almost like a, a rock concert. Um, so the ecosystem here has developed uh, substantially. And in my opinion, it's an absolutely excellent place to found a company now. Um, some of the characteristics that are critical to this ecosystem are New York City has the largest concentration of Fortune 500 companies um, out of any place in the United States. Um, so there are a lot of potential customers here. Um, there are a lot of companies who have problems, um, who need those problems solved, uh, and, and that should be the mission of, of any startup. Um, in addition to that, uh, the investing um, ecosystem here has really developed very nicely. So uh, back when I started my first um, uh, company here, there weren't that many experienced uh, venture investors or angel investors, and now there, there are numbers of them. Um, so you have people like uh, Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures, who's very well known um, and, and uh, arguably one of the top VCs in the world um, who's based here. Uh, and then you have other uh, smaller funds, such as Bold Start Ventures, um, that's carving out a very specific niche in New York and doing, doing great work. Um, in addition to that, you now have some examples of uh, great exits that have taken place um, in New York. Uh, so companies like Flatiron um, Health, um, Yext uh, had a fantastic exit, um, and, and others. Uh, so they've proven that you can build a world-class, high-value company here. And one of the benefits of, of having exits like that in an ecosystem is it produces a large number of, of experienced entrepreneurs and also angel investors. So you've heard about the PayPal mafia, and that same uh, effect takes place in places like New York when you have a company like Yext um, that that uh, exits uh, or flat iron health, uh, health that exits. Per, you've worked in several funds b- before, VC firms, etc. So if I flip it around from a startup point of view, what's the difference if I were a startup to go between uh, a standalone venture capital firm or a corporate VC? One of the main differences between an independent venture fund, a uh, financial investor, and then a, a corporate um, venture fund is that they uh, have different objectives. Uh, to some extent, and uh, they're also governed in a different way. Um, so from an objective standpoint, an independent venture fund uh, simply has the objective of investing in companies that they think um, can be uh, the world leaders in the specific domain that they're targeting. Um, and they can have almost a pure uh, financial perspective on those companies. We think that these are the best entrepreneurs with the best idea, the best product, and the best ability to execute, so we're going to back that company. And, uh, and it can be a relatively uh, pure focus. Corporate VCs typically have a dual objective. So one is, is that. They want to invest in companies that generate a financial return. Um, but in addition to that, they typically want to invest in companies that have some strategic interest um, to their parent corporation. And that's going to be driven primarily by the sector that the parent corp um, is active in. So for example, if it's a large bank, uh, they're go- going to want to invest in companies that somehow uh, are helpful to their clients and customers and also to the bank itself. So they're probably not going to invest in... So that's one issue. The other issue, I would say, uh, is on the governance side, where an independent VC can really make decisions themselves. Uh, so there's typically a small partnership, a small group of people who have the independence to make decisions in the way that they want. Um, and that gives them a huge amount of flexibility with regards to how quickly they can invest um, the breadth of the types of investments that they can engage with, um, how they work with their portfolio companies, 
and a large corporate VC uh, will typically have a different governance structure that might require um, investment decisions uh, being uh, made not just by the investing partners, but by a number of other people in the company. Uh, and that can, can guide those decisions in a different way as well. What's your advice to a startup you know, who may be blessed with that kind of options of going with an independent VC versus a corporate VC? What kind of startup would go well with you know, either one of those? Absolutely. So my advice would be, sir, would be be selfish. So think about um, exactly what your objectives are and what you want out of that investment and that relationship, and then go with the partner that you think will deliver that most effectively. Um, so an example, again, is if, if you're a startup um, that really um, relies on partnerships with large corporations, um, either them as your customers, uh, as a channel to market, um, if you need to access a specific uh, asset that they have, whether it's unique data or something along those lines, and that might be something that you can a benefit from working with a corporate VC, which an independent VC might have a more difficult time providing for you. Um, but on the other hand, if you're a startup that doesn't necessarily need access to some of these unique um, corporate assets, uh, there might be better reasons for you to work with an independent VC. Um, there might be more flexibility with regards to decision making. They might have a network uh, that's more applicable specifically to your startup and, and the problem that you're trying to solve and the opportunity that you have. So uh, you should try and evaluate basically the set of assets, the value add that you think each of these uh, investors can provide to you, and then be very clear what's going to be most valuable for you and make the decision um, based on that. I mean, many MBAs want to go to work in the VC industry. I mean, from your experience, what makes for a successful career in VC? Uh, I mean, the first thing I would say is that being a successful VC is very, very hard. So if your objective is to make lots of money, uh, there are probably much easier ways to make lots of money <laughs> than becoming a VC. So in the same advice that I would give um, a startup, be very clear about what your objectives are. Be very clear about why you'd want to pursue a career uh, in, this, in this sector. Um, and um, if you do want to pursue a career uh, as a venture um, investor, position yourself uh, effectively to, to add value um, in that domain. And uh, in my opinion, that's the best way to find a job um, in the venture sector and also be successful. So today, there are a large number of VCs that are out there, and it's critical to be successful to really uh, differentiate exactly what value you provide to your customers, who are the startups, who are the founders of those startups. Um, so figure out what your niche is, figure out what your real value add is. It could be uh, deep domain expertise in a certain area. You could be an expert in AI. You could be an expert um, in consumer customer acquisition. There could be something that you're truly an expert in. It could be that uh, you have a fantastic understanding and a network within a very specific um, ecosystem. So maybe you're the best networked person in New York City um, in the tech ecosystem, and you can bring that um, to both a venture fund, but also to the startups that you're investing in. Um, so figure out really what you're unique angle is um, and uh, uh, continue to develop that and exploit that to be successful. For an individual, after a VC has already invested money, etc., there's obviously going to be a long period where they have to nurture the companies in that portfolio. What are some of the characteristics that you think are quite crucial for, someone, for a, an individual in, working in a VC firm who's doing that role? I think it's, it's a couple things. One is, um, exactly to your point, 
uh, once you've made an investment, uh, you've made both parties, both the entrepreneurs and also um, the venture investor have made a massive commitment. It's like a marriage. Um, so uh, beyond just transferring capital and trying to provide advice and, and be helpful to that startup, you have a, a very strong and long-lasting relationship. Um, you know, the typical successful startup uh, uh, exits within seven plus years. Um, that's longer than many real marriages actually last. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a long-lasting relationship. Um, so go in understanding that, that this isn't a transaction. This is a relationship that you're, you're engaging in. And I think to be successful in that regard, um, A, you need to really be able to operate as 50% uh, of the relationship effectively. So provide your domain expertise and provide the technical um, value add to the startup uh, that you can, um, but also understand that you're there as a partner um, to the founders. You're there as a sounding board. Um, you're there as a friend. Uh, you're there to, to professionally challenge these people to become better um, in their jobs. And those are all the other uh, aspects that you need to provide really as part of a relationship, not part of a, uh, part of a transaction. Another thing is that you need to continue trying to figure out how to add value to that startup over time. So what may have won the deal is your deep domain expertise in a specific area. Um, but over the next 10 years, as that startup uh, develops and is hopefully successful, uh, what adds value to them is going to change over time. Um, so they're going to develop uh, deep domain expertise um, that probably uh, will exceed yours. Uh, you need to continue figuring out how to evolve with that startup to add value to them. So what might have been really important for them on day one is not necessarily what's going to be important for them in year three. Um, it might be helping them recruit team members. It might be helping them um, do customer development and find new customers. It might be uh, helping them negotiate um, an exit or a new investment from other investors. And you need to be able to continue to evolve to make sure that you're adding value in these different ways over time. Your perspective, what's interesting or what's exciting for you now when you look at potential investments? What kind of areas really get you going? Um, so one is in the whole data analytics, machine learning, AI domain. Um, so there's obviously a lot going on in that space right now. And, uh, and to quote Jeff Bezos, it's really day one in that sector. Um, so there's a a statistic um, that I heard recently that 90% of all of the data um, that's been generated over history has been generated in the last 12 months. And that supply of data continues to increase um, over time. So there's simply uh, a source, an asset that didn't exist in the way it does today, um, even three years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And people are just learning really what to do with that, how to leverage that, how to create value with that. Um, so there's a huge amount going on in the space. And that won't change. Uh, that's only going to accelerate over time. Um, the other sector that I absolutely love uh, that I've been involved with for a long time um, is in the gaming sector in general. And you see success cases like Fortnite, um, who if you have kids, I'm sure they're playing that game um, today, like my kids are. Um, so you can still build massive franchises uh, that create a huge amount of value in a very short period of time um, in the gaming sector. In addition to that, you have changes uh, such as are taking place in the United States right now, where in the regulated gaming side with online gambling, um, the regulations are changing substantially. So now um, sports betting uh, is legal in the United States, where it wasn't um, even 12 months ago. 
and uh, that's causing significant opportunities and changes to take place in the regulated gaming um, sector in the United States. Um, so there'll be a lot of uh, uh, success cases uh, that are, are generated in the very near term um, in the United States in that market as well. So those are two areas that, that I like a lot. Mm. I'm trying very hard to keep my daughter, my six-year-old daughter away from Fortnite. So <laughs> wish me luck. It's a tough battle. <laughs> Lastly, if you can cast your mind back, and this is you know, a couple of years when you finished business school, what is something that you wished you'd learned in business school that you didn't? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, my experience um, in Cambridge at the judge was fantastic, so it's hard to say specifically what I, I missed. But there are two things that I think about um, when I think about uh, if, if I could go back and do it all over again today. Um, one, I'll directly answer your question. The other is, is a little bit of a tangent. Um, but one is, uh, I wish I would have taken more finance classes. Um, so most of my focus uh, while I was at the judge was on strategy and entrepreneurship, which was fantastic. And I took some finance classes. Um, but if you could leave business school um, with uh, certain tactical skills, such as being able to manage uh, Excel extremely well, um, that's a very transferable skill almost no matter what uh, career you go into, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, and that just can be a very handy tool to have in your toolkit. Um, the other uh, characteristic that I would say um, uh, that I, I wish I would have done, and, uh, and, and you might not like me suggesting this to all the students that are there, but I, I would have worked less hard um, than I did while I was there. And the reason I say that is that um, uh, certainly at Cambridge, and, and I'm sure this is the case at other places, but Cambridge uh, has this uh, opportunity, I think, in a more unique manner than, than almost any other university in the world, is uh, the breadth of experiences that you can have in the short time that you're there is absolutely incredible. Um, so both at the business school and also in the broader university, there's so much that you can be exposed to, uh, uh, which can generate a great experience. You can learn a ton from it and might lead to really fantastic opportunities in the future. So you can sit in your dorm room and keep your head down and work very hard, which you certainly should do, um, but you should also make sure that you take the time uh, to open your eyes up and uh, experience the really the breadth of opportunities in one way. Um, I always tell people they, they really sh should work extra harder than they've ever done, <laughs> whether it's uh, academics, on the career search, but most, most importantly, actually immersing themselves in the kind of opportunities exactly. uh, in, in, in business school. So meeting their student, you know, fellow students, understanding what they do, and forging that kind of friendships, which hopefully should last them a lifetime. Exactly. So that's probably a better way of putting it. You should work very hard, but uh, work very hard at, at experiencing the breadth of, uh, of opportunities that you have there. That was Per von Zelowitz on his career journeys and his <clears throat> advice for current MBA students. If you are thinking of going to the VC industry, think a lot about what Pear said in terms of how you have to develop a niche for yourself. But you also have to keep growing personally as your startups grow. That's a very sound piece of advice for anyone, really. I want to let you know that this podcast is also available on Spotify. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts. If you can, leave a rating and review. It helps others discover this show. And if you have a smart speaker, you can ask A-L-E-X-A -E or Siri or Google Home to play this podcast. Till next time, this is Helen Harding-Mail, standing in for Conrad Chua on Changing Careers. Music